Thank you for joining us for the Lafayette Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Please join us each week as we listen to lessons given on Sunday mornings at the Lafayette Church of Christ. Good morning, Lafayette. It is, uh, it is good to be with you all this morning, in spite of the uh, circumstances with Kyle and Lacey and their stomachs. Um, I was a Bible major in college, and uh, I study theology for a living now. And if you're like me and you have ever, uh, and your college work and your kind of life skills were uh, formed in the humanities, you reach this point in your life where you sort of realize and make peace with the fact uh, that you are not a particularly useful person by most, by most standards of usefulness. Uh, if you have a friend or family member with an electrical problem in their house, they do not say, let's call the Bible major to come over and fix this. Uh, they call an electrician or the friend that studied engineering in college and knows a thing or two. Uh, when somebody wants financial advice, you definitely do not call the Bible major humanities person. Uh, you call an accountant, a business major. Uh, when you're on an airplane and, say, and somebody says, we have an emergency, is there a doctor on board? Uh, unless you need a doctor that can tell you what a Greek word means, I am no help to you whatsoever. Uh, and whenever your, te- your friends are getting together a rec basketball team, they don't call you to be the center, the all-star center um, on second thought, that may have more to do with my height than what I studied in college. But there is one moment where the Bible major theology person is just a little bit useful. There's that one glorious moment in your life when somebody says, Quick, is there somebody that has tons of word docs with theological ideas that nobody has or ever will read that we can call on in this one moment. And I am there to answer that call. (laughs) It's that moment that the preacher gets sick the day before and you need the emergency sermon. Uh, As as, uh, Dave and others have said, Kyle and Lacey are both sick and we wish them well. Um, I'm glad to be with you this morning, but hope that they will be uh, uh, healed and on the mend quickly. And while Kyle is out, we're going to put a brief pause on our Philippians series. Kyle uh, should pick that up next week. Um, And instead today, the the text that we're drawing from that that Hayden read so beautifully for us earlier comes from what's called the lectionary. It's just a reading plan that Christians uh, throughout the world use on a weekly basis to guide their personal study, to guide their preaching. And so I thought, we need a spot sermon, we'll just draw from this text. And so what I'm going to invite you to do today is open your Bibles, turn with me to John 14, starting in verse 23. And we're going to just spend some time imagining what's going on in this text, meditating on it, and letting it seep into our lives and into our thoughts. Imagine with me for one moment that you are one of Christ's followers, his disciples, in this time and place when Jesus lived. You've been traveling with Jesus for several months now, if not years, watching his miracles, listening to his teachings, 
falling in love with this curious, kind, and beautiful rabbi. And you can't believe how lucky you are to be in the presence of someone so, ref excuse me, so refreshingly new, but so radically faithful. But something is up, and you know it. Jesus has always been a little odd. He has this penchant for talking about darkness and morbid things that doesn't always quite sit well with you. He talks about death a lot, taking up crosses, eating his body as a living sacrificial bread, whatever the heck that means, laying down your life for others. And that crazy prophet John the Baptist who you've heard about and maybe even seen out in the desert has compared Jesus to the sacrificial Passover lamb. Death and the topic of death seems to follow this guy. And these teachings about death are beginning to take on a prophetic tone. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who run the temple in Jerusalem, the lawyers, the scribes, and the Roman authorities all seem bent on taking Jesus down. You've heard rumors of assassination plots, conspiracies to discredit Jesus, plans to bring the whole apparatus of the very scary, I should add, Roman punishment system crashing down on him and anyone who follows him. There's even talk that some of these opponents may have infiltrated Jesus' inner circle. Someone in your midst could be a traitor, a spy. And so as you've gathered to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem with Jesus and your fellow disciples, there's a spirit of anxiety and fear. Like maybe this great thing that you've been a part of is about to come to an end, come crashing down. And unfortunately for you, Jesus is doing nothing to dissuade these fears. In fact, he's acting like he's trying to wrap up his teaching ministry, telling you everything he's wanted to say but hasn't yet tonight. He's washed your feet He's foretold his betrayal, and he keeps talking about going to his heavenly father. There's a sense of melancholy, of sadness, of fear, but also joy at getting to hear this masterful teacher speak once more. You simultaneously want to be nowhere else and anywhere else. There's a particular kind of feeling of melancholy that washes over us when we know that something wonderful is about to come to an end, a period of life or uh, uh, an activity that we've been doing. I remember my last months in college and undergrad. I lived with a group of close friends at a house near the university. We were best friends. We did everything together. We had our fights and we had our tensions. But those last month or two of college were particularly interesting. Every moment pulsed with a vibrant but sorrowful joy. The jokes were funnier, the conversations were happier, but we were also sad because we knew that things were about to change, that we could never go back to the way they were, and that the times would only be a memory. I'd like to think that maybe this is a similar feeling to what the disciples were experiencing as Jesus gave his final teaching. Our text today comes from John 14, uh, and it, it's plopped down right in the middle of what is often called the farewell speech of Jesus. 
John's gospel is unique among the others um, because throughout the whole book, he zooms his lens in on these particular interactions and these teachings, these moments of Jesus' life and gives us greater detail, more, uh, more uh, parts of the conversation, more teachings. And this farewell section is one of the longest. It's five chapters of dense, kind of complex, kind of confusing teaching that covers only one night of Jesus' life, from the washing of his disciples' feet all the way up to his betrayal and crucifixion the next day. And John gives us a glimpse, I think, into, that, into the drama of that final night of Jesus' life. We get to sit alongside the disciples as Jesus rushes to say all that is left to be said about service, discipleship, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, death, and life. And I've always been struck by the whole teaching of the section because of how sad it must have been. Christ's disciples must have had an inkling of what was coming. I'm sure they probably didn't know the details, when it would happen, how it would happen, how they would react, who would betray Jesus. But new revolutionary leaders were popping up all the time in Jesus' day, and they usually met with the same end, death, shame, and forgottenness. And for a while, perhaps the disciples thought that Jesus would be different. But as Jesus speaks on that final night, he seems to be acknowledging and suggesting that their worst fears are coming true. He will die. He will leave. And the reality that they have been living in, reveling in, hoping in, is about to change. Jesus seems to want them to anticipate the end. So imagine with me one more time that you're one of Jesus' disciples and you're sitting with him on this sad, joyful, sorrowful, melancholy night. And you're probably feeling a lot of emotions. Joy at being with your teacher. Fear at the unknowns of the future. Sorrow at the prospect of Jesus' departure. And in that swirling, confusing mix of these emotions, the tension, the fear, the happiness, the sadness, Jesus says, as he's often prone to do, Something rather strange. From verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Peace is a weird thing to offer at a time like this. From what you can tell, Jesus is marching towards a violent collision with the powers and the authorities of your day. The Romans have a penchant for extreme violence. The religious leaders have a penchant for extreme pettiness. And so when Jesus offers you peace, maybe some part of you scoffs just a little bit. How can someone feel peaceful, not worried, not fearful at a time like this? I've been asking you to imagine yourself in the place of the disciples and playing up the emotional aspects of this text, not because I have some special insight into uh, what it must have felt like to be with Jesus on the night before he was betrayed, but because I want us, I'm doing this because I want us to see what's at stake in Jesus's teaching. It can be easy to read these dense teaching passages in John in a superficial or quick way. If you're like me, there are times when I'm reading John and my eyes just kind of glaze over a little bit because I'm trying to navigate 
these complex and sometimes dry teachings. It's easy to lose the forest and all the trees. But I think it's helpful and clarifying when we remember the, the drama of the situation, the tension, the fear, the tragedy of the moment. Because it throws into starker relief the strangeness of the gospel, the good news that Jesus offers his disciples, its beauty and its truth. Jesus, knowing full well that he's going to his death, Jesus never does anything accidentally or without knowing it in John. Knowing full well about his death, he offers his disciples peace. And this isn't the sort of rote peace or hope that we tend to offer one another by almost reflex, like, they're there, it will be okay. No, Christ offers a more powerful peace, a stranger peace. He offers his own peace. My peace I give you, he says. I do not give as the world gives. What is this strange peace? This peace that Christ can offer in the midst of this turmoil, at the end of his earthly ministry, on the night that everything will change. How can peace be given and received at a moment like that? Look back with me now to the beginning of the passage in verse 23. Jesus says to his followers, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. When I read or hear this passage, my mind immediately jumps to verse 27, my peace I leave with you. There's something so wonderfully beautiful about Christ offering us, offering you and offering me his own peace. There's something so beautiful about it. I just want to hang on those words and to dwell in them and let them soak into my soul. But I think the key to understanding the peace that Christ offers his followers lies in the verses around verse 27. Because the peace that Christ offers isn't a regular sort of peace. When I tell a crying child that everything will be okay, when I offer him or her my peace, what I mostly have to offer are words and an imperfect presence. I can say everything will be okay, but I don't always know that. I can say that I will stay close at hand, but I know I'll have to leave eventually and won't have my presence to offer anymore. The peace that you and I have to offer one another is temporary, fleeting, and imperfect. But the peace that Christ has to offer, 
is a perfect peace, a peace without conditions. It is a divine peace. Throughout verses 23 and 29, and really throughout the entirety of this farewell address, Jesus continually makes the point that he is not acting alone. His words are not the words of an ordinary man. His actions are not the actions of an imperfect person. His presence is not the presence of a finite, limited human being. Christ is, as John says in the beginning of his gospel, as Greg reminded us, the eternal word, the one who was in the beginning, the one who was with God, and the one who was, is, and will be God. And so the peace that Christ has to offer his disciples in the midst of such turmoil is the peace of God himself. When the disciples obey Jesus' teaching, they are brought into relationship with the Father. Whoever obeys Christ's teachings loves the Father, and the Father loves them. When Christ goes to, the goes to be with the Father, the disciples are given the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in and among his people. people. And when Christ offers his peace, he's offering the peace that reigns among the three persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians have taught for a long time, in large part because of this passage, that the one God exists in three persons who live in perfect, loving harmony with one another. Peace reigns in the life of God because all three persons work together to bring about the salvation and sanctification of God's people. There is no quarreling. There is no jockeying for power. There is no division. There is only eternal peace. And it seems to be the fate of human beings in every time and every place to realize just how not peaceful we are, no matter how hard we try. To realize how much we live in tension with ourselves and with the world around us. And humanity has always intuited that the peace of God, the eternal, the divine peace, the sort that never passes away, that is sufficient for all moments, remains tantalizingly out of our grasp. One of the oldest books or stories we have outside of the Bible is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Some of you may have been forced to read this in one of your classes in college or high school. And it's the story about this great ancient Near Eastern king named Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh slays monsters, conquers kingdoms, he is as powerful as a human being can be. But when his friend Enkidu dies, Gilgamesh is confronted with the reality that he's human. He will die. He will not have eternal peace. And so he goes on this journey looking to uh, obtain the peace, the eternal life of God, of, of the gods. And the epic is so dark because... Its whole point is basically, you can never obtain this peace. 
No matter how powerful you are, no matter how great you are, you will never obtain the peace of God. And Gilgamesh dies frustrated and failing in his quest, ultimately. So here is the remarkable thing about Jesus' teaching. In the middle of perhaps the most stressful, fearful, painful, and and anxiety-provoking moments of their lives, Jesus offers his followers the peace that creation, all creation, has longed for from the very beginning. The peace of God. And so here's my good news for you today. The peace of God that Christ extended to his disciples on that fateful night is the same peace he offers you today. It's a peace that will never fade. It's a peace that can never be exhausted. It's a peace that will endure in the midst of the worst moments of life. It's a peace that will remain when your loved ones die, when your life falls apart, when your friends abandon you, and yes, when your stomach turns against you the night before you're supposed to preach a sermon. There will be times when you may not be able to see it or feel it, We are imperfect, sinful, and broken people, after all. But it will be there, breaking into your life in unexpected, unexpected, joyful, and transforming ways. And it's this peace that will be our reward when we've passed through through those last moments of life and into the arms of our loving, peaceful Savior. The good news of the gospel is not only that our sins are forgiven and that we are saved. That is part of the good news. But it's also that we, through the death and the going away of Christ, are brought into this eternal peace that people have longed for forever. Into a peace that surpasses understanding. Into the peace of God if you'd like to respond to this peace this morning that Christ is offering us, or if you have any other needs that you would like to discuss or pray about, uh, the Malcolms will be out our back door, down the hallway to the left, in the prayer room. May the peace of Christ be with all of you as we go forth today and into our lives. Let's stand and sing.